Welcome to Real Deep Stuff. I'm your host, Christy Buttles. With 8 billion people on this planet, there are countless stories to be told. When we come together as a community and we listen, really listen to one another, we can learn from each other and we certainly learn that we have more in common than we have less. Way more than we probably thought we did. This is a place where we're going to listen to real people share their real stories of struggles and failures and victories and challenges, and we're just going to get messy with all of it. This is a place to be encouraged and inspired and challenged to think outside the box, get out of our own heads and look at another perspective. Join me as we learn from one another and grow with each other as individuals and as a community. I'm so excited. Let's get to it. Welcome to episode two. It is my pleasure to introduce you to a friend of mine, Charles Height. Charles has experienced the darkness of drug and alcohol abuse, the despair of imprisonment, and the hope of a second chance. And through surviving death on life support, he has found a new purpose and a new beginning and is now committed to sharing his story with others. This is a story of transformation and redemption, a story of the power of Christ to bring about change in the most broken of lives. He is an example of how God can take the worst of circumstances and turn them into something beautiful. This episode will be split into two parts, where Charles shares his life, and then we have an honest conversation about choices, consequences, and the gifts of family, forgiveness, and healing. This podcast contains sensitive content related to drugs, suicide, and alcohol. Listening to this podcast may be upsetting and triggering to some listeners. If you are feeling overwhelmed or distressed, please consider seeking help from a qualified mental health professional before listening. All right, so I'm uh, Chad Height or Charles Height, depending on when you've met me in life. Um, and the reason I, 2019 changed my name, going by my legal name, just turn a new leaf. Um, but that wasn't the end of my story. And my story's not over until the day I'm called home. And I was almost called home Two years ago, about a year and a half ago, um, I had a addiction and a struggle with mental health. And two months prior to my, what I would say, final wake-up call, I had many wake-up calls over the 10 years of my struggles, but they were never large enough for me to adhere to them and make a change. Um, never really opened up about the demons and stuff that I had. Uh, pushed down in my life and tried to do it my way and that um, didn't get me anywhere except facing prison and death and February 26th of 21 I was in what I thought would be the last treatment center um, it was in Nashville Tennessee or outside of Nashville Nunley Tennessee called the ranch but there's a in one of the groups um, the therapist had us write a story or a poem from the perspective of uh, something and I chose my mom's cell phone and um, just the irony of it because it came true uh, two months later and even half a month later so I'm going to just read this kind of just start off um, this podcast episode and um, it'll kind of give you perspective um, of what my mom went through dad as well and sister, but just how invincible I thought I was, but it still did not change my outlook 
once I got released from that treatment center. Because um, I got arrested an hour or two after getting released on some you know serious felony charges and facing prison time. And, um, and then two months later, uh, this story poem titled Phone Calls that I wrote came true. Um, but obviously, uh, I woke up off life support and Due to that, I know that I have purpose here on uh, this earth, um, or I would have been called home that day. Um, and part of that is me sharing my story and helping others who are going through what I've been through, who know someone who's been or is going through what I've been through, just to help them and be kind of there for them as they walk through that or walk through that with someone. So I'm going to read this and then... Um, just talk a little bit about my story before we jump into uh, this episode, but it's titled Phone Calls, and I wrote it February 26th of 21. So, ring, ring, hello, hey, it's me again, is he okay? We need you to come identify the body. Why? What happened? No, 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 I've been fearing this call. He didn't even make it to 30 years old. Dialing and then my phone number. Ring, ring. Hey, it's Charles. Sorry, can't come to the phone right now. Leave a message at the beep and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Thanks and have a great day. Hi, it's your mom. Just got a call to come identify your body and can't believe this day I feared has actually come. I pray this is a dream and I wake up from this nightmare. Why are you gone? What happened? What could I have done? I can't handle this pain and didn't know you had all this pain and suffering. Why couldn't you talk to me? Where did I go wrong? I can't hold and touch you no more hugs or kisses. I don't have to dread the phone call I just got. No mother should have to go through this. So many calls I got from hospitals, cops, jails, and this call I hope I can recover from. You're my firstborn, oldest, leader and now you're gone. I don't get to have tears of joy when you find the girl to marry and walk down the aisle. Be there to hold your firstborn. Why couldn't I outlive you? What could I have done differently? Why didn't I have, why did I have to get this call I've been dreading? This shouldn't happen to a mother. Just know you're loved and we're the best son a mom could ask for. Rest in peace and I'll see you in heaven. Just know you weren't a burden, and it was a joy to be your mother. Beating the phone clicks. So I wrote that two months before I um, ended up on life support, and um, sat there, and you know, after hearing the instructions, and didn't know what I was going to write about, and then just started kind of flashbacks of all the stuff I had been through and put my mom through, um, you know, and my father and sister, and. It just popped into my head and scary how that came true uh, two months later and I sat there and wrote that and predicted the outcome that happened and thankfully I'm here to be able to share my story and my journey and that I have purpose and I'm able to use my story for the good and to further his kingdom and help those who are struggling um, but my story starts I was born um, 91 at Presbyterian Hospital here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and two wonderful parents, Lane and Lauren, um, 
Carmel Baptist. It's where they still attend and I was raised. And then my sister, Laura Beth, was born in 93. It's two and a half years later. Great family. Um, you know, was taught a lot um, and had a good upbringing. Um, struggled in school. Um, some of that, you know, I was lazy and others was, it was just harder for me to stay on track, pay attention um, and grasp some of the knowledge. Um, and so that's when I started to compare myself to other students and I would say anxiety um, became a factor. Um, and going to, I guess, um, sports were always something that I was good at. Uh, I enjoyed basketball. Um, played that uh, in high school, Covenant Day, and wanted to play college, but that didn't happen. Um, very social, outgoing, and um, started, I guess, partying a little bit socially junior year of high school and senior year, and then went to Gardner-Webb freshman year, wanted to play basketball, um, and that was one of the schools that I got into, <laughs> so... Um, cause again, school wasn't easy for me. I struggled in, um, sports. You can't ride on sports, you know, your whole life. Michael Jordan could, but I mean, even him, he got cut from his high school basketball team. Um, so, but went to Gardner-Webb and transferred after freshman year, went to Appalachian, joined a fraternity against my parents' wishes. I'm glad I did have a lot of great friends, brothers that, um, stuck with me throughout my whole story and struggles. Um, but I lost a lot of friends along the way. Um, but 2012, uh, death that kind of shocked our community and the church community and Charlotte community played a big factor um, in my story and kind of the spiral that I went down. Because I'd never dealt with death prior in this way. My grandfather died in 03. Um, which was a shock, but I was seventh grade, first year at Covenant Day. So I had a lot of support um, around me, family, but when you're in college, it's um, a little tougher, especially when, you know, community is maybe the, it's not lined up what you're used to or your upbringings and dealt with death um, kind of the way I thought. And that was by just numbing you know, my feelings, which made it worse. And then a lot more troubles happened. So after graduating, that continued, uh, failed relationships, jobs, um, even, you know, suicide attempts, um, because at that point I compared myself still to the people that I went to school with, grew up with as I'm less than, uh, I'm never going to get that job or that girl. I'm never going to have that family. And then it was comparing myself to, you know, those in rehab rooms or jails. Well, my story's not that bad, so I'm better off than them. So I was shooting myself in the foot, as I like to say, until my story did get that bad or worse. Um, and people have stories worse than mine, but everyone's got a story. You know, no story is better or worse than everyone's story is different. We all have struggles. Um, and like most of us, we think we're alone. And I thought I was alone. And um, several times couldn't come to terms with that and tried to end my life. And looking back now, while since I'm healthy, I was able to see how God intervened and prevented um, a lot of 
further tragedy um, in my life and the family's life and friend's life. Because um, suicide's not the answer as I thought it was, but I've seen a lot of suicides and the aftermath and the ripple effects is awful. Um, and it doesn't solve your problems, it ends them, but it makes it a lot worse. Uh, 21, and that was the big one that was facing prison time and uh, another individual was involved and that individual had to go to the hospital, um, but by God's grace, he did not press charges on me. So it was only um, charges that the police um, charged me with. Um, still serious charges, but uh, even that wasn't a wake up call for me. Um, and got released and less than 25 days later, uh, was on my last bender. And for me, drugs, um, or my drug of choice was cocaine, and it even got into crystal meth a little bit. Um, but started with, I would say, Adderall, kind of. Um, I like how it made me feel. It did help me focus and help with the ADD that I have, but I abused it. Um, and uh, I mean, I remember in college would mix Adderall with cocaine, and I was even doing Adderall, cocaine, and meth at certain times um, in 20 and 21. So it's a shock that it took that long for my body to shut down and um, die. But thankfully, um, a fire truck found me on um, somewhere, it was either Selwyn or Queens Road West, but somewhere in that area, they were coming back from a call and it was early in the morning. I'm not sure of the time, but um, they took me in the fire truck to uh, CMC, well, I guess Atrium, Maine now. Can I, can I ask what you were doing lying there on the ground? Uh, so I was at a um, friend's, well, I was with friends, and um, I wandered away from the apartment that we were at, and so I don't know what I was doing there. I remember I stepped out to make a phone call and that's the last thing I remember. Um, but the fire truck found me and they took me to the hospital. So I didn't have any ID on me, no phone, uh, wallet, none of that. Um, so I was a John Doe or if you make it to the ninth floor, the, IC, the neuro ICU, I was Epsilon 9. It's like a uh, John Doe name up there. But Another part of how God was involved in my story, one of the nurses was my best friend's older sister and was able to identify my body and through um, her brother get my sister's phone number, reach out to her to say, hey, y'all need to come say goodbye, here's what's happened, and um, woke up two days later off life support and... For me, I thought I had gotten COVID, and COVID knocked me out, which is not, oh, wow. that's not going to, that was my first thought, because um, I didn't know what had happened, and my dad um, was on my left, and he goes, no, you died from an overdose, and been on life support, and in that moment, I remember just looking up at the clock that was in front of my bed, and I still had the ventilator down my throat, catheter, so um, very uncomfortable, but I knew my life could no longer be how I was living. Because two things I said, I would, you know, I wouldn't end up in prison and I wouldn't die from an overdose. Well, those two things basically just happened or I got very close. You know, I got a plea deal to where I didn't have to go to prison and 
I woke up off life support, which a lot of times people don't wake up off life support. And mm-hmm. so I knew in that moment I could not keep doing what I was doing. And it didn't happen overnight, but the mindset changed and it took a while. And I still have struggles nowadays, but those struggles are different from what they used to be. Um, I know I can't change my past. I know the Lord's created me and made me in his image. I know he would have called me home, you know, April 25th of 2021 if I no longer had purpose here on his earth, but he didn't. So now I use my story to help others. I've spoken at Auburn University, uh, Calvary Day School in Winston-Salem. And earlier today, I got a text from Carmel Christian about speaking at their chapel service. Um, and um, been told Charlotte Christian's gonna reach out. So I enjoy being vulnerable and sharing my story, not to get a pat on the back, but to hopefully help at least just one individual from going down that dark road that I went down to realize life is precious, you're not promised tomorrow, and decisions that you make today can affect the you know projector, trajectory of your life. Um, and because um, my story didn't just affect me, it affected my family, friends, and you know, people in the Charlotte community and other lives that were involved in certain events. Um, but without community and support, you know, I would not be here. I would be on the streets, prison, or um, dead. Um, and probably wouldn't even be on the streets. I'd probably be in prison or dead. Um, but just the power of community and prayer um, goes a long ways. Because um, I've seen a lot of people who don't have that, and it's sad. Um, one, you know, they never get that chance to believe in themselves. Um, two, they don't have that love or that support for people to be there for them uh, when they're ready to give up. You know, there was a lot of times when I wanted to give up as I spoke, but um, the Lord didn't allow that. For instance, 2019, because um, that year I was in rehabs for a full year, bounced around um, Charlotte and Southeast and down in the South, but... Um, that morning, so I've been in psychosis for four to six months from just drug use, lack of sleep. I mean, I go two or three days without sleeping. And um, can you explain um, <clears throat> what psychosis is? Um, so I was hearing and seeing things. I was not in my right mind, um, just from lack of sleep, um, drug use. So I was my vision and my hearing was very heightened, but in a paranoia state. Um, so like at work, I was always in fear that I was going to get fired or lose my job and that people were out to get me. Um, seeing things, I was never frightened until, um, early January, the day I ended up in the hospital. Um, but I would see like animals or just, you know, images walking, um, nothing that frightened me, but it was just always paranoia of losing my job or people out to get me um, and just very depressed and um, just wanted to be alone kind of but to this day I could feel my mind kind of shutting down and left work around lunchtime and was going to my house to go shoot myself and got there and um, the guy who I live with was like an older brother neighbors growing up our families but his mom was there with the appraiser getting the house appraised, which he normally told me stuff that was going on, 
just so I would know. He didn't tell me this, um, but got there. They were on the front porch, and so I couldn't go in and get my gun to go shoot myself. So that's just one instance of many where I'm able to look back and be like, all right, the Lord's like, you're not, mm-hmm. I'm not done with you. Yep. Um, because I was done with myself. You know, I didn't love myself and I didn't know how someone else could love me if I didn't love myself. You know, I didn't see any good in me, any value. So why would somebody else? Um, and until, you know, woke up off life support and saw the people that were reaching out and coming to the hospital, just how much I was loved. And the people that stayed with me through my entire, you know, struggle with addiction and mental health that, you know, are still by my side today. I lost a lot of friends and people and, I mean, it hurts, but I'm fine with that. Um, I've learned people come in your life for either forever, short period of time, and some people you see their true colors when things get tough. And I saw that for a lot of people, but the ones who are still in my life, um, you know, I know they're there. Um, and always have my back and vice versa. So, um, last year, I guess it's 23 now. So 2022 would have been last year. So 21 October started a podcast. Um, and Christy was a guest, I think episode 49. Um, it's called the rabbit hole show. The rabbit hole show. Yes. (laughs) It's Um, awesome. Check it out. Yeah. Go check it out. Um, Episode 23 is a good one um, to hear more of my story in episode 50. Um, and then Christy was telling me she was listening to the first eight or nine. And I was like, I'm sure it's a lot better now than then because I had just started. But um, you can hear more of my story in those first several episodes. But 23 is with my parents and able to um, just have a conversation with them. That was our first real in-depth conversation about the whole journey and um, just how it affected them and how they were able to navigate um, as parents um, even through their marriage um, leaders you know work etc because you're not given a manual on how to deal with a child that has addiction and mental health struggles Um, so I wanted to have them on to one just talk about me as a son who had addiction mental health but then two allow parents that might have a child who's dealing with what I went through to hear from their perspective. Um, but started out in October of 21, wanted to share my story. And then people were like, you should have guests on. I said, well, how are they going to relate to my story? And first guest, um, he was at, uh, with me one day when I was getting a tattoo and, um, was kind of manic and an incident happened and um, he was able to talk the guy out of pressing charges so I had him on to kind of share more in depth that day from his perspective and then started asking more people to come on and as I had guests on I realized as I stated earlier you know we all have a story and we all have struggles and you're not alone so through having those guests on, I was like, well, I can have guests on to share their stories. Their story might not relate to mine and mine not, might not relate to theirs, but someone listening might be able to relate to that person's story and be able to get a lot out of it where someone might not, but they might be able to get something out of another guest's story. Um, so that's where the rabbit hole show formed. Me wanting to tell my story and then having guests on to share theirs so others can be able to resonate and kind of just build a community um, 
addiction, mental health, whatever you know, people are going through. Because everyone's going through something or has gone through or will go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's alone. But a lot of times you think you are alone and um, that's when it gets scary. Definitely check out the rabbit hole show. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. You guys are rocking. Thank You're you. Kicking it over there. And yeah. really blessing a lot of lives. We've had Jai on there from Guyana, who um, you've had on recently. Um, yep. So we had a mutual guest yep. on. <laughs> I always say Charlotte is a uh, small big town or a big small town. <laughs> yes, yes. If you're from here, you know, you can go somewhere and run into someone you know. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is totally true. I mean, from our, at the hospital when I was on, you know, life support, <laughs> thankfully mm-hmm. they were able to yeah. identify me, but being from Charlotte can help. For sure. Or it can also hurt you. <laughs> you know, when yeah. I was running the streets, sometimes people would see me and I didn't want them to see me, but mm-hmm. um, I'm glad those days are behind me and mm-hmm. I'm able to share my story and help others um, and just have a different outlook on life. Life's a lot different, and I like being in bed early. I, you know, it's a lot more calm than what it used to be, which is good now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. So uh, I look at you, and I mean, you're just doing great now. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But we all know there's like this whole backstory, and I think life sometimes feels like a Venn diagram where it's like, well, if you go left, this is what's going to happen. If you go right, this is what's going to happen. So if we like back way up to when mm-hmm. you were a kid. Um, you talk about feeling inadequate, like not enough in school. School's hard for you. Like, um, tell a little bit about where that came from. Was it internal? Did you were you comparing yourself to friends? Did you feel teacher pressure? What? Where did that come from? Um, I think a little bit of both. Uh, I want to say a lot was internal. I mean, I was played basketball, sports, so I was competitive. So I always wanted to do well in school, but when I tried to do well, I didn't always do well. And that was very frustrating for me because I couldn't perform to what other students were. Um, And then I think later, some of it just became lazy. It's like, well, I'm not going to do well, so why even try? Um, But there were some times where I had teachers who, um, you know, called me stupid or, um, you know, just suggested I needed to be on medication and so that you know affected me it's like oh I guess something's wrong with me Um, I mean we're all made differently but um, just paying attention for me was hard concentrating uh, reading comprehension Um, so I mean a lot of it was internal and I wanted to do as well as the other students you know there's kids who could study for 30 minutes and get an A, and I would study for four hours and get a 60, and that might have been my best, and that's all, you know, that my dad and mom asked for, um, but there were those struggles kind of for my parents, especially my dad, and we've had a lot of conversations, healthy conversations, um, and some of that was on the episode 23, um, but he pushed me to do my best. And sometimes when I was doing my best, he thought I could do better. And times when he was pushing me to do my best, I wasn't doing my best. Um, and just that communication, because I didn't want to let people down, you know, and further into my story, you know, with legal troubles, um, rehabs. I've been to eight rehabs, five psych wards, and then arrested four times. Um, just a failure. 
um, so that was hard. So a lot of it was internal, but as you, there were some, um, you know, factors from teachers and even students, you know, bullying, which happens at today might even be more because of social media and different uh, mm. platforms mm -hmm. that kids can do that. Whereas growing up for me, it was you, to the face or behind the student's back. Um, so what would you say to maybe parents that are listening? What are some indicators that that someone's struggling? I mean, everyone's different, all of that. Mm -hmm. But like, like, what are some common kind of either um, obvious or subtle cues that, that the student child is struggling? Um, I mean, one, communication is big. And just making sure there's an open dialogue, um, you know, trying to get out of school work or not go to school or making up excuses of why they can't do certain things. Um, that was just big stuff for me or, um, you know, just bad grades and bad grades aren't always an indicator, but you know, that could raise some question. And I think that did for my parents. Um, but again, as I say, there's no manual on, uh, if this happens, this means this, or if you have someone dealing with addiction, mental health, whatever it may be, on how to um, handle it. So the community is big, and but just having that open communication, that love, and um, you know, punishment can be good, but it also can be bad because you don't want your kid to hide stuff from you. You want them to come to you when they have a problem. Like I remember my dad saying, you know, if you're ever trapped somewhere, you drink or something, call me and I'll come pick you up. Um, I'll even park a block away and come get you. Now I never made that phone call. I should have probably several times, but I knew he loved me and cared and wanted what's best for me. So making sure um, there's that as a parent with your child, that you know the child knows that they're loved and that um, you're gonna do anything for them. But, um, I mean, it's hard, especially nowadays with social media and technology, where there wasn't as much of that growing up for me. Um, but yeah, schoolwork, um, just deflect, just trying to get out of it, you know, and not wanting to go to school and um, unsure of what I wanted to do. I mean, that's a hard question. It's kind of an open-ended question. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um, but just having like that open line of communication is big, where they trust you to share stuff with you. That's really hard these days because yeah. everyone's on a screen all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, setting time aside to, you know, at dinner maybe, no phones, TV or whatever it may be, just um, having those communication, those conversation. Talking about within your childhood and growing up, one of the things you also mentioned is anger. Can you tell us a little bit about anger for you? Yeah, anger was a big problem issue for me. And a lot of that was comparing myself to others, not being good enough in my eyes, um, being a failure, and then never talking about my issues. I just kept stuffing everything down and eventually, that balloon is gonna burst, gonna pop. And for me, I wanted girls to love me and guys to fear me. I didn't wanna be pushed around or seen as weak. Um, Cause I had a lot of baggage that I was carrying that I had never unloaded. Um, and I didn't love myself. 
And so if someone looked at me the wrong way or made a comment, you know, and I never thought about consequences until after the fact. So I fought a lot um, college and then a lot after college. Like literal fighting? Yeah, with fists and different stuff. Because um, I didn't want someone to take advantage of me or push me around. And again, I never talked about a lot of the issues that I had going on that I had suppressed because um, I could take care of it myself. Well, I wasn't doing myself any justice because I was walking around with a chip on my shoulder. I hated the world. I wanted to kill myself. Why did you hate the world? Um, because if I didn't love myself, why would mm -hmm. anyone else want to love me? Hmm. Um, makes sense. Yeah. And, um, and I've never talked about any of my issues. And if someone like a, my parents or sister or someone close to me tried to ask what was going on, I was fine. Nothing's wrong. When I had so I much, done that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fine. I'm when fine. I had so much stuff going on, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to seem weak. Um, and, um, so anger, and that's an, that's not a true, you know, emotion. There's an underlying issue. Anger is a secondary emotion. Um, and I had never found that root cause. Well, I thought I was a failure, less than. I was always comparing myself. And when I'm not mounting up to what I thought I should be, I was always angry. <clears throat> Did you feel that comparison less than in the sports or just academics or both? Just academics in life, you know, academics growing up and then um, even in college, well, I'm not in this major, I don't know what I want to do. And then after college, people, you know, friends um, in successful careers, you know, getting married, kids, where am I? Well, I'm in another rehab or I'm in jail. And so the comparison... For me, it started out academics and then where I thought I should be in life as life, you know, went on. And, and then even, I might have said this earlier, but started comparing myself to, you know, academics and then people I grew up with where they were in life. But then on the other spectrum, my story's not as bad as this person I'm in rehab with until it got as bad. So I was shooting myself in the foot. With the anger, and the comparing and the low self-esteem. Um, what kind of coping skills did you use? Like, I know you mentioned you started off with Adderall, but what else did you use to cope? Um, I mean, drinking, cocaine. Um, How old were you at that point? Um, I started with weed, I'd say, in high school. Um, Adderall was in college, and that was to help with school, but then I liked how it made me feel. So I have to ask you. Yeah. So like, so a guy going to a private Christian school mm -hmm. in the middle of a great family, solid church, nice community, where do you find weed? Oh, it's, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, neighborhood, um, yeah, the neighborhood, and and then I, I mean, I grew up playing AAU basketball, so, um, you know, met a lot of different types of people. Um, and I'm very outgoing and social, so um, that was 
never hard. You know, I've never really met a stranger. So it's like maybe the opposite team's player would have it, or a neighbor, or a yeah. school friend. Yeah. yeah. All the people that. All the above. <laughs> All the people that are flying under the radar. Yeah, and then you know, um, as I got when I got older, and you know, I um, like post college, like for cocaine, for instance. Um, like I would be at, like I was just very bold and did not care. Like I would just walk around the bars and ask. I mean, you could kind of tell who might have it, but I would just straight up ask people and. You know, even got robbed a few times, um, but I never thought about consequences and was living for the moment, not in a healthy way. How often were you doing cocaine then while in college? Because that would be very hard to um, manage schoolwork, I would think, with that. Um, I mean, mainly just parties, you know, weekends, Thursday through, you know, Saturday. Not, I wasn't doing it every day or every weekend, but frequently um and but in college you know you don't have much money so and cocaine kind of cost a little bit so uh, that's where i was able to abuse adderall since insurance paid for that um or took a nice penny out of the cost um and um then when i got out of school similar on the weekends um, but then as my story got, you know, deeper, I'd say, the struggles got worse. Um, it was more frequent. And it wasn't every day. I never did it every day. But um, it was when I like, partying and just wanted to escape. And um, But then, you know, times would, you know, I'd go out. I was, me and my mom were talking, I think last week, and... She has screenshots of just, she has a lot of photos she was saying. Some of them are screenshots from conversations that we've had over the years. And one of them was, she texted me the following morning. um, I think it was around 10 a.m. And I'm not sure what day this was, but um, several years ago. um, Probably, I want to say maybe 2016. Um... But said so I saw you called last night. Is everything okay? And I responded, "Everything's good now." Went out for a beer. Ended up in the hospital. How's your day going? Just played it all, you know. Oh wow, that is not what a mom wants to. <laughs> no. And so the phone calls that I read at the beginning, that was to one show kind of a lot of the different phone calls she had gotten. Um, you know, she had gotten from cops, jails hospitals, rehabs, um, and yeah, a mo- mother doesn't want to get any of those calls, but she got them for nine, ten years, um, and just the PTSD she got, because um, it wasn't, when I would call during that period of my life, and she wasn't, hey, how are you, it was... All right, what kind, what type of state of mind is he in? Like, what's going on? Like, mm-hmm. kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I would call, it would, she would kind of get frantic. Like, what's going on? What am I going to have to do? Type of worry. So a lot of lack of sleep for her. 
Um, and um, but then I sent that phone calls that I wrote to her a week or two prior to me ending up on life support. And my dad and sister were at the beach house. Mom was in Charlotte. She went up because um, I think they had gotten in contact later in the afternoon, evening, and um, sister and dad had to drive back from the beach. They didn't get there in time to come up and see me, but um, a lot of the community, um, the Shannons, Pastor Alex from Carmel Baptist, um, I had several other people, Hunter Thomas, who he was at Renew with me as one of the leaders, and they moved to Charlotte, and he's back in Chattanooga now, but... Um, um, he was up there, so did that the importance of community is my mom wasn't there alone. Um, she had people around her um, during a very hard time, but when my sister called her to inform her what was going on, she goes, well, I guess this is it. Like, I guess, you know, it's finally over. Mm-hmm. Which, in a way, and I've had a lot of friends die over the years from overdoses, suicide, um... And for a while, death kind of became numb to me, which is scary. Um, you know, I was going to funerals left and right. Um, and it was just, I just got accustomed to it and just numb. You know, some of the parents, you talk to them, and they never wish death upon their kids, but addiction robs you of who you are. It's not who you truly are. You know, you're living for that. To survive, you need that to survive. That's not who you are, and um, you know the parents would say, "At least I don't have to worry about getting that phone call or what they're out there doing." You know, I know they're safe. They're with their heavenly Father. Um, so I mean, it's tough. It's hard. It's sad, but um, that was the reality of my life. You know, just when is it going to end? Like an ironic relief. Mm, like they don't yeah. want that, but. There's peace somewhere in that. Correct. Even if it's incredibly Death. horrible, sad peace. Yeah. Um, speaking of family and friends, um, I know relationships are important to you. And um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I know you mentioned codependency and friends coming and going. Like how mm-hmm. uh, you also mentioned at the beginning of our time that support system is very important. So. Where did the friends come into your story, or not? Or maybe they didn't. Yeah. Um, so, childhood friends. Um, and then those from Covenant Day and Carmel Baptist Church, where I grew up. Covenant Day, where I began attending in seventh grade. Um, and then neighborhood um, friends from growing up. Um, so, those were where the friendships came. Um, you know, friendships from the relationships my parents had with other families, um, and um, and then friendships from when I was in my journey in rehabs. You know, some of those people are the close, some of the closest people I'm with still today, um, and they're able to relate because they walked in. You know, at least some of my journey, um, not necessarily with me, but in their own journey, so they can relate in that form. Um, friends, childhood. Um, friends, um, there's a handful of them, um, but stayed with me through that entire journey. They didn't throw in the white towel like some people did. Um, Were any of them kind of trying to intercept some of your choices, or did they just kind of 
love me no matter what. Love me no matter what, but also, you know, pour into me and what are you doing type. But then I had some of those friends that, what are you doing? I can't associate with you anymore. I'm throwing in the white towel. And in my head, I'm like, well, if you say you're my best friend. Why are you throwing in the white towel? My best friend should be like, what the hell are you doing with your life? You're not, this isn't who you are, who you were raised to be, what you're called to be. What are you doing? And I had those friends who did that. But then I had the so-called best friends as well who did not do that and said, I can't associate with you. So the friends that were, were calling you out, how did you respond to them? Um, I wasn't as honest, you know. I was good at hiding. Um, and We all can be. <laughs> exactly. Living that double life, kind of. Because um, I didn't want people to know my struggles. Again, going back to I didn't want to seem weak or be pushed around. Now, I know they weren't pushing me around, but... I didn't want to seem like a failure by, but that's how, again, I was coping. And I didn't want people to know that's how I was coping or that I had struggles. Um, and then further along my journey, it was easier for people to tell he's struggling. So did you keep those friends in your life or did you try to, so either maybe like, did you mm-hmm. keep them in and, and, and let them into your world or did you keep them in and just kind of sort of lie (laughs) or hide a little bit um kind of hide it um and um yeah i would say hide it um that i want to be judged again like grew up in the christian home church love going to church you know i always look forward to wednesday and sunday and youth camps events at the church but then later in life like in college i didn't go to church much um, and still had a relationship with God, but I had a foot in the world, a foot in the faith. And that might have been 90% in the world, 10% with you know my walk with the Lord, but I still had one. And it might have even been at times, Lord, don't let me die tonight, or Lord, don't let me catch these charges, or whatever they may be. Um, but as my story continued to get worse, I've feared judgment from going to church. What are they going to think of me? Um, so a lot of it was just hiding and acting like everything was good when it wasn't. Everything was close to falling apart or was falling apart. Um, but my close friends, if you ask them, the ones who knew me from a kid to today, they knew stuff was going on and had an idea. You know, I let some of them in a little bit. Um, but I kept distance between them as well. Um, and my sister especially. Um, you know, I never wanted to let her into my world. But I Was want- that more because of how um, maybe you were wanting to protect her or not be judged by her? Be judged by her. Okay. Um, but I wanted to be that big brother, you know, that everyone wants to be. Or not. maybe not everyone wants to be, but... Be that big brother who's a protector, loves their sister, she can come to for whatever. But I couldn't be that, but that's what I wanted to be. So she had to um, practice, you know, setting boundaries, tough boundaries, where she didn't talk to me at times. And in my eyes, at that point, it was she doesn't love me. She sees I'm struggling. Why is she not talking to me? Or 
reaching out or wanting to hang out with me. Well, she had to protect herself from the lifestyle I was living. And how was she learning that? Did she just instinctively know to do boundaries? Or like as far as your family going through this with you, how was she able to set boundaries? Um, I don't know. Hopefully one day we can, you know, ask her that because I want her to come on my podcast. But and maybe she won't ever come on. I don't know because I, you know, she had to live with me for or, you know, she's family. But my story and, um, you know, so I traumatized her a lot um, just by those phone calls and stuff. So I think a lot of it was just her personality. She knows what she wants. Um I mean, and we're we're stubborn people, <laughs> um, but I think she just knew she had to protect herself and didn't want to be around me and was unsure of you know which brother she might be getting, an unstable one, one who's high, or was she going to get a loving brother, you know? It's really good that she could set that because there's some family members and friends that could be completely absorbed into all of that drama mm-hmm. and pain and all of that and, and completely drown in it. So. And then you can also become an enabler without even knowing you're mm-hmm. being an enabler, mm-hmm. which is hard, especially for a loved one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, this is a really um, good segue to bring up, um, you talk about shame. Can, mm-hmm. can you kind of maybe tell us about that? Um, yeah. Um, going back just to not being where I thought I would be in life at what that age, you know, seeing friends in serious relationships and getting married, having kids, you know, being in their career and I'm trying to figure out life. Um, you know, no story is the same. Um, and everyone has something just, some people are better at hiding it. Um, and not everyone has struggles with addiction or, um, you know, serious de- deep depression, anxiety. Um, but you don't know what's going on behind those closed doors. And I thought I was the only one going through that. Um, and was just living without any purpose. And that really bogged me down. Um, I, didn't, I wasn't where I wanted to be and um, kept ending up in rehabs or jail and or the hospitals and that's not how I wanted to be living um, and um, and then school as a kid growing up wasn't amounting to what other students were so there's a lot of shame um, and then going you know on the my family the heights um, bringing shame upon their name you know that bothered me by my actions you know I wasn't trying to do it on purpose, but, you know, at one point I remember, and you might still can, but if you would Google Charles Land Height, you would see my dad's um, headshot for his, um, um, for work, and then you'd see, like, one of my mug shots, Mm. and for me, that was a big comparison. I know my dad never, ever compared, you have to be financial advisor, you have to... He wanted me to do my best and um, whatever that was going to be, is going to be, you know, he's going to love me. And I love my father. We have a great relationship now, but I always compared myself. Well, I'm never going to be my dad. I'm never going to make this much money or 
this house, this neighborhood. You know, it was always basically woe is me. And that was very defeating because I, I set my expectations so high to where I wasn't going to reach them. And I don't want to be my dad. He doesn't want me to be him. You know, I need to be myself. And I'm finally um, doing that and creating my own name and being able to share my story and journey to help others. But shame was big because I was always just comparing myself to others and what never being true to myself. And even in relationships, as you said, codependency was big for me. Um, I didn't love myself. And when I was in relationships, oh, somebody loves me. So I was becoming whatever I thought that girl wanted me to be. And I wasn't going to be able to live without her because I didn't want to do anything to jeopardize that relationship. Well, over time, you begin to resent that person. And that relationship doesn't work. And I go crazy and get dumped. And, you know, then in jobs, I was getting fired. Um, so I was just let down after let down and I'm a failure so what good am I doing why am I here let's just go ahead and end it and so that was my mindset shame feels kind of like a spider web it's like once you walk into it it's like no matter how hard you try to get it off of you it, it just makes it worse mm -hmm. so what led you out of that a lot of people ask that and God, I mean, and God allowing me to hit a true rock bottom and waking up off life support. Because I wanted to die, but then when I woke up off life support, I'm glad I didn't die. Mm -hmm. We and talked about that sharing. Mine was not life yeah, support, yes. but we both were like, okay, this is, please let it end. Correct. But then when you wake up, you're kind of mixed. Like, oh, I'm still here. Yeah. And I was glad, but then I was like, why couldn't I just have died? But then I saw how much I was loved and how much I meant to those people that were still in my life. And I was relieved, but I was scared too. Because when you kind of become accustomed to being institutionalized, you're being told what to do, when to eat, what groups to go to when to sleep, whatever. And so it was, it was scary. Like I got to do something now, you know, I, like overnight. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I'm thankful that my family was still by me, you know, cause a lot of family would have given up and had to love from afar. And they were very close. I mean, there's times, you know, be end of 20 and beginning of 21, Kind of when all that was happening before, you know, getting arrested and then life support. We weren't talking, really. Um, and my sister had done a lot more of not talking and um, loving from afar. Um, but that was hard. Um, but now, looking back, they had to do that. Because mm -hmm. like you were saying, getting wrapped up and suffocating mm -hmm. um, themselves. Um can be draining and dangerous and scary as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, God allowed me to see and hit rock bottom, but be able to see now on the other side of how good life can be. I mean, I still have struggles. You know, I'm mm -hmm. still single. I'm 
still in between jobs trying to find a career. Um, you know, it's scary, but I know he has something for me and plans and a purpose. And I don't know what that is, but I'm trusting him. This concludes part one of episode two. Switch on over to part two of episode two to hear the rest of Charles' story. Thanks again for listening to Real Deep Stuff. Subscribe to save your seat at the table for the next conversation. We'll see you then.